1963, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee conducted lengthy hearings on the activities of agents of foreign principles in the United States. Two days of testimony in May and August publicly revealed the massive money laundering operation that had only briefly been investigated a decade before by the Eisenhower administration. On May 23, 1963, the committee heard testimony and reviewed subpoenaed internal American Zionist Council activity reports and vouchers of payments made to Kennan. Senator Fulbright wondered aloud why Kennan was not registered as a foreign agent with the Department of Justice. Fulbright would receive few satisfactory answers to that question during the hearings. A transcript of sworn testimony details Senator Fulbright grilling two representatives of the Israel entity responsible for channeling overseas funds to Kennan. Maurice Bokstein and Isidore Hamlin of the Jewish Agency grudgingly revealed to Fulbright how hidden subscription payments for Kennan's Near East report subsidized his lobbying activities well into the early 1960s. Later, in his memoirs, Kennan would insinuate that Senator Fulbright was a product of such rural isolation he was susceptible to anti-Semitism. While a strong majority of Congress supported us, one man conspicuously led the opposition. He was Senator J.W. Fulbright, an Arkansas Democrat. There were few Jews in the state, most of them a handful in Little Rock, and he had little opportunity to learn about Jews and their interest in Israel. Understandably, he was susceptible to the anti-Semitic doctrine that Jews were guilty of dual allegiance, wrote Kennan. Kennan's Jewish agency-financed attacks on Fulbright had reached a crescendo in his Near East report by the early 1960s. Given the buildup, it is a mystery that Kennan was completely unprepared for an investigation into the financing of his activities. When Kennan caught wind of Fulbright's pending investigation in 1961, he promptly fled the United States for a safe haven, as he detailed in All My Causes. Kennan wrote in the book, In 1961, it was rumored that Fulbright intended to investigate foreign agents. I was subjected to a barrage of inquiries from friends and foes wherever I went. And while I was confident that I would survive the attack, I decided to vanish from the scene. Coincidentally, I was invited that year to visit Iran as a guest of the Iranian government. I accepted the invitation. And from there, I flew on to Africa to learn more about the people of that continent. I was happy to find most African countries friendly to Israel, and I was more relaxed in Africa than in Mr. Fulbright's Washington. Kennan had two valid reasons for worry. First, the Department of Justice was privy to the Senate investigation and about to go on record that it was dead serious about allegations that the American Zionist Council was operating as an unregistered foreign agent. It issued a blunt public statement in March of 1963 before the Senate hearings began. The American Zionist Council's relationship with the American section of the Jewish Agency for Israel has raised the question of whether the Council has an obligation to register under the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Second, Kennan could not successfully counter the formal investigation by the Department of Justice and Senate as a pogrom instigated by anti-Semites. Once again, it was the American Council for Judaism leading the charge against the American Zionist Council. 
fed up, the American Council for Judaism had taken its case directly to the Department of Justice, as noted in the New York Times. An article read, The Justice Department said today it was studying whether the American Zionist Council should be required to register as a foreign agency. The acknowledgement, in response to reporters' queries, was the first statement of the department on differences between the Zionist group and the American Council for Judaism. The Council for Judaism has publicly urged that the Zionist Council be required to register as a foreign agency that promotes immigration and advances the political policies of Israel, read the article. The American Council for Judaism's public demands provided added impetus and a bit of political cover for the deep and probing Senate investigation that followed. The American Council for Judaism's objections about how tax-exempt funds raised in the United States were being used to finance politics in Israel as well as the U.S. stemmed from a quiet power struggle. The unprecedented disclosure of how United Jewish Appeal and international funds were actually being used in America was a rumbling aftershock to the earth-shifting Zionist takeover of Jewish relief fundraising in the United States. Between 1921 and 1930, Zionist organizations active in the United States collected approximately $15 million in contributions from the public. Between 1931 and 1940, this amount only rose to $25 million, but in the period between 1941 and 1948, the amount suddenly ballooned to $287 million. The replacement of general philanthropic humanitarian, and relief-oriented leaders at the largest fundraising organizations with dedicated Zionists was premeditated and caused a wholesale redirection of these private tax-deductible financial flows. The United Jewish Appeal was established in 1939. IRS treatment of United Jewish Appeal funds as tax-deductible contributions has been uninterrupted since then though it was briefly threatened by the Eisenhower administration and placed in jeopardy by the non-exempt activities of groups such as the American Zionist Council. The war for control and direction of the funds raised by the United Jewish Appeal and related organizations led to a series of ugly battles between Zionist and non-Zionist stakeholders, as chronicled by Rabbi Elmer Berger. Some years earlier... He said, Rosenwald and Rabbi Morris Lazaron had fought against merging the United Palestine Appeal, the central Zionist fundraising effort in the United States, with the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee. The joint was dominated by non-Zionists. Its beneficiaries ran to practically every country where there were Jews in need. In an oversimplified formulation, its philosophy was to provide assistance to Jews in countries in which they lived, helping to facilitate their eventual integration into those societies. The United Palestine Appeal restricted its beneficiaries to Palestine, and Zionist propaganda designed to condition contributors to support building the national home. Of the two major funds, the JDC had consistently enlisted the greater support, proof again that on its own, Zionism had no firm hold on the grassroots of American Jews. Never at a loss for maneuver or dissembling, however, the Zionist managers persuaded the big givers that a united campaign would be more efficient than the competing double campaigns. Ideology was deliberately subordinated to expediency, and after a long series of negotiations and several trial marriages and separations, the Zionists succeeded again in forcing the philanthropists to confront the issue of a joint campaign. 
Rosenwald and Lazaron were the leaders of the opposition, and the battle established a kind of friendship. But they lost, and the United Jewish Appeal was established, he wrote. Candidly, and much later, Isaiah Cannon was very succinct about the need to establish umbrella organizations that would consolidate power and ongoing fundraising resources into the hands of a few relatively non-transparent elites who could maintain cohesion through urgent issue advocacy and appeals to the fundraising base. He wrote, American Jews have a multiplicity of organizations serving diverse religious, philanthropic, cultural, and educational views and needs. But they've never created one permanent national Jewish organization to express the views of the totality. The American Jewish Conference came the closest. It was conceived in 1942, and its liquidation in 1948 came after it helped to win its major objective, the restoration of a Jewish state. It died in success, perhaps because of it. Kennan wrote. Between 1951 and 1960, approximately $18 million of United Jewish Appeal money raised in the United States was transferred to the Jewish Agency in Israel and then on to Israeli political parties. In 1954, American Zionist groups affiliated with Israeli political parties were the dominant means for participating in the movement, though none registered as foreign agents. Zionist groups, read one report, are now quasi-political bodies affiliated more or less with the political parties in Israel. A Zionist sympathizer can become a member of the world movement only by joining one of these constituent groups. The $2 million per year allocation, 2% of the agency's $100 million budget, kept political parties from directly conducting unsightly political fundraising campaigns within the United States. However, Foreign Agents Registration Act statutes in force at the time strictly defined and applied to even these hidden aggregate connections to foreign political parties without proper disclosure. U.S. funding flows to politicians in Israel continue to create problems. In 2008, Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmart was forced to resign over a corruption scandal involving U.S.-based donors. No U.S.-based Zionist organization faced prosecution for dodging Ferris statutes covering ties to foreign political parties. However, in 1959, Treasury Secretary Fred Scribner, 1908-1994, warned Zionist organization leaders that they needed to restructure and alter their U.S. fundraising operations to keep the administration, the IRS, and the Department of Justice from prosecuting them for criminal violations. In a wide-ranging 1960s reorganization, the Jewish Agency then transferred Zionist activities to the American Zionist Council's management, including youth immigration to Israel, propaganda, and Zionist cultural activities in the United States. But funding co-mingled with contributions from other countries and even the Israeli government continued to flow back into the U.S. from entities directed by Israeli principals. The Jewish Agency created a new executive board of 21 members in control of all United Jewish Appeal dollars going to Israel. What one critic called another paper operation intended to satisfy a legalism in Washington. This allowed Kennan and like-minded Zionists to obliterate the financial influence of opponents like the American Council for Judaism. Chairman Lessing J. Rosenwald quickly saw through the reorganization and complained loudly in May of 1960. He said, For a time, these past few months, 
non-Zionists and anti-Zionists had the opportunity to recover control of the vast fundraising mechanism. Despite some honorable efforts to make a basic change to the system, the Jewish nationalist movement once again rode roughshod over non-Zionists and anti-Zionists alike, said Rosenwald. The reorganization successfully channeled funds raised in the U.S. through conduits under the exclusive control of Zionist activists. But it also legally exposed the Jewish agency and the American Zionist Council as they surreptitiously moved tax-exempt funds raised in the U.S. and overseas into non-tax-deductible, FARA-regulated propaganda operations, including Kennan's lobbying newsletter. This operation was uncovered in 1962 and vividly revealed by Senator Fulbright in hearings. Behind the scenes, on a parallel track, the Department of Justice moved to register the AZC as a foreign agent. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee's research team, led by Walter Pincus, who later went on to work for the Washington Post, went to work in 1962, issuing subpoenas to the Jewish Agency and the American Zionist Council for documents and deposing witnesses. The Senate investigators personally visited the offices of the Jewish Agency American Section in New York to rifle through filing cabinets, an insult that Isaiah Cannon blasted in the Near East Report. The hearings immediately revealed the American Zionist Council's lack of independent fundraising capabilities in the United States. In spite of its status as an official Israeli-sanctioned umbrella organization for powerful Zionist organizations, even in 1963, the American Zionist Council had so little direct non-tax-deductible U.S. funding that it all but completely relied on the Jewish agency for support. The American Zionist Council was forced to admit this in a deposition to Fulbright. The American Zionist Council is composed of local Zionist groups in the United States and is affiliated with the World Zionist Organization with headquarters in Geneva. The American Zionist Council has received virtually all its operating funds from the Jewish Agency for Israel via the American section. Approximately 40% of the total budget of the Jewish Agency for Israel in return is contributed from the United States through the United Jewish Appeal. The government of Israel also contributes to the Jewish agency's budget, read the deposition. David Ben-Gurion's vision for the American Zionist Council as a U.S.-based successor organization to the Jewish agency did not inspire much direct funding from Jewish relief-oriented donors. The American Zionist Council should have seen where the threat to this laundering operation would come from. It was another direct result of disgruntled Jewish organizations who resented the Zionist funding power grab and black box decision making championed by Kennan's and Israel lobby elites. The Jewish agency's corporate veil was about to be lifted by the American Council for Judaism's demands. Initially, in the May 23, 1963 Fulbright hearings, testimony about the American Zionist Council's funding from the Jewish Agency in Israel ran into a wall of offshore opacity. The Jewish Agency's New York legal architect and long-serving registered agent was Maurice Bokstein, 1905-1980. Bokstein issued a complicated set of wire diagrams of both onshore and offshore entities. He hoped the diagrams would convince the Senate investigators that the Jewish agency was a highly complex, somewhat inscrutable, and mainly engaged in resettlement, education, and relief operations. 
Whenever testimony approached formal contractual agreements with the Israeli government, articles of incorporation, and bylaws, the architect Bokstein became vague and evasive. All of that was safely ensconced offshore, beyond the reach of the Senate. Or was it? Fulbright, a former Department of Justice lawyer in the Antitrust Division, attempted to penetrate the veil. Senator Fulbright, do you execute and prepare the registration? Bokestein. Mr. Chairman, as I am the expert on the subject, having acted for the agency as counsel, the Constitution divines the function of the executive. There is no document that I'm aware of that lays down the working rules such as we would in this country refer to as bylaws of the executive. They act by resolution. Fulbright. Well, do they act under majority rule? Bookstein. They act under majority rule by resolution. Fulbright. Do they have subcommittees? Bookstein. They have subcommittees, which they appoint ad hoc, or sometimes continuing subcommittees, Mr. Chairman. But we shall search but I'm aware of the existence of no document which would be equivalent to rules or bylaws. Fulbright. Do they have minutes of meetings? Bookstein. Yes, they do. Fulbright. Could you supply us with copies of the minutes of their meetings since 1960? Bookstein. Mr. Chairman, I am not so sure that would be a pertinent document. The minutes are in Jerusalem. They relate to all kinds of matters. If you mean excerpts of minutes relating to activities in the United States, we will be glad to furnish them. But I don't think that you have any interest in minutes relating to matters of completely ungermane subjects. Fulbright. No, we wouldn't request anything ungermane. It was my understanding from testimony this morning that a very large percentage of the funds of the executives derived from this country. Is that correct? Bokestein. That is correct. Fulbright. I will agree that not all of it would be. I was interested in how this agency operates. I don't know of any precedent of anything like it in any other instance, and I thought it would be interesting to the committee to understand how foreign agents in this particular field operate and what kind of principles they represent. Bookstein's effort to dodge questions about offshore operations and the existing covenant document between the Jewish agency and the Israeli government endured for a while. But during the same May hearing, subpoenaed internal American Zionist Council activity reports never meant for public release revealed the extensive, highly developed, and subtle behind-the-scenes effort to plant stories favorable to Israeli initiatives via a select and growing group of volunteer and paid public relations specialists based in New York. The Ferris section of the U.S. Department of Justice was dumbfounded by testimony illuminating the extent of the operations divulged in the internal documents. One internal American Zionist Council document read... The American Zionist Council's Public Relations Advisory Board was reported by Ms. Epstein to be our newest committee, which has only had its first meeting, and therefore it is difficult to know 
how it will develop. One of the more important public relations men in this city was invited by the government of Israel to introduce a course on public relations at the University of Tel Aviv to help the government map out better procedures for its own public relations effort. Israel was delighted with the contribution which this man made, and he, in turn, came back excited and deeply interested in Israel and everything for which it stood. We were asked to approach him to build up a committee of public relations men who could be called on when and if problems arose, which needed technical know-how and assistance, which only such people could give. Ms. Epstein approached him, found him most responsive. He sent out a letter, and last week, 15 of the outstanding public relations men of this city sat around this table to consider how they could be of help presenting a positive picture of Israel and the U.S. A confidential and damning internal strategy report on 1962 and 1963 public relations was placed into the Senate records. It was not only shockingly detailed, but seemed purpose-built to violate every line of FARA disclosure laws. The damning documents placed into the Senate record also included a field report filed on October 23 of 1962 by Judith Epstein, chair of the American Zionist Council's Department of Information. Her budget had fallen from $750,000 to $175,500 since her part of the work of the American Zionist Council had, in her words, now been taken over by the Kennan Committee, which was charged with political action, formerly in the province of the American Zionist Council. All approaches on the Hill to the political parties, etc., are now the responsibility of the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, whose funds are not tax-exempt. Thus, the greater emphasis is now put on the more subtle approach, which through positive presentation of Israel's accomplishments, aims, and purposes, and by counterattack of the many enemies of Israel and the Zionist movement, she wrote. Epstein mentioned the American Zionist Council Information Department's efforts to prepare responses to what they considered hostile anti-Israel reports appearing in Cosmopolitan, the Columbia University Quarterly Forum, and editor and publisher. These were among the 25 responses to newspapers or magazines that are written or sent in an average month. The American Zionist Council was following closely the Arab states with their numerous embassies and consulates, the Arab Information Office, the American Friends of the Middle East, and the American Council for Judaism, but urged that Local councils be strengthened throughout the country so that we may be kept informed of anti-Israel activities. The Middle East Institute in Washington, D.C. was also being closely monitored for anti-Israel propaganda of a subtle nature. The department formed a campus watch group called the Inter-University Committee on Israel, which expanded from its base in New York to place favorable articles in leading academic publications in the U.S., the American Zionist Council also established a magazine committee chaired by a man who holds a key position on the editorial level in the magazine business. He knows everyone in the trade, has important contacts, and exploits them on behalf of Israel. This unnamed editor led a committee composed of 15 writers and editors who are eminent in their respective fields that built up a bank of ideas for freelance writers who go to Israel in search of articles and has provided the Israelis with a better idea of the kind of material which is acceptable to the American reading public and magazine editors. We cannot pinpoint all that has already been accomplished by the committee except to say that it has been responsible for the writing and placement of articles on Israel in some of America's leading magazines. For broadcast media placements, the TV Radio Committee had secured the services of 
the director of creative projects of an important TV chain, to arrange for talks and interviews on radio and TV, submits ideas for possible programs to stations and networks so as to give a better and more sympathetic understanding of Israel to the viewing American public, and takes steps to counteract hostile propaganda in these media. In the view of many millions of Americans who daily watch TV and listen to radio, this is one of the most important media in which we must expand our work, it read. The Department of Information Speakers Bureau did 2,240 engagements in 1961 with, according to AZC, an absurdly small staff targeting multiple community venues. One speaker in a single day would make four to seven appearances. A Rotary Club, a World Affairs Council, a church group, a high school assembly or college group, a woman's club, a TV or radio appearance, a background session with a local editor or commentator, etc., with the majority of engagements before non-Jewish groups. According to the field report, the American Zionist Council Research Bureau analyzes books and articles that deal with Israel or the Middle East. When a book is favorable, it is recommended. When it is unfavorable, it is analyzed and distortions are pointed up by providing the factual data required so that our local councils will be prepared to react to the impact which these books have on communities. The Research Bureau also interjected itself into high school textbook content. The Inter-University Committee has been preparing textbook material as a guide to social science teachers in the junior and senior high schools on the subject of Israel. It would be impossible for these busy academicians to do the painstaking research required. The Research Bureau developed centralized policy positions, now commonly referred to as talking points, for informing local Zionist council leaders and Jewish community leadership as to our recommended position and steps for actions on issues such as the Arab refugee problem, the Soblin case, the Jordan water dispute, etc., Similarly, we distribute material and advisories for special occasions, such as the celebration of Israel's anniversary, the 10th anniversary of Wiseman's passing, etc. The American Zionist Council in New York was quick to put out memos and templates for stories to be submitted to local newspapers from local councils across the United States. Propaganda quality control was a key concern. A February 27, 1963 American Zionist Council committee memo from Harry A. Steinberg urged that enclosed herewith suggested material which can be used by you in preparing replies to the Max Friedman articles in the event that they have appeared in one of your local papers. It is not necessary to use all of this material in your letters to the editor. Use portions which you feel will make the most impact to your editor and the readership of the paper. We request also that you do not use this material in the submitted form, but that you rewrite it so that letters submitted to various parts of the country do not appear to be identical. Influencing Christian religious groups was also a key objective of the American Zionist Council. The American Zionist Council's Commission on Interreligious Affairs was responsible for effort in gaining friends in the Protestant and Catholic religious communities. In addition to bringing together Orthodox, Conservative, and Reform rabbis, the committee concerned itself with monitoring the Christian church press, stimulating articles representing Israeli and Zionist ideology, and answering the hostile attacks very often found in the publications of the Protestant and Catholic Church, as well as cultivating key religious leaders and editors. The commission led seminars that in Boston alone attracted 50 Catholic priests and documented the successful seminar approach in a 
manual for rabbis, giving the know-how of establishing these seminars, steps to be taken, and the scope of the subject matter, approach, etc. The commission's work was seen as one of the great possibilities for the future, since one cannot underestimate the impact of public opinion on churchmen of this country. The successful fusion of the power of evangelical Christian groups with the Israel lobby a generation later would prove this analysis to be entirely correct. The range of Department of Information activities described in the American Zionist Council field report and fact that they were being financed with Jewish agency funds raised Senator Fulbright's ire. Isidore Hamlin 1917-1991, was appointed executive director of the Jewish Agency American section in 1961. In sworn testimony, Hamlin was evasive about the massive public relations campaign underway in the United States and the central role of Isaiah L. Kennan. Fulbright. Now, let's see. Was this report furnished to the Jewish Agency American section by the American Zionist Council? Hamlin. Sir, this handwriting on this memorandum indicates to me that it was sent to one of the members of our executive, who is a member of one of the governing boards of the American Zionist Council, Fulbright. But is he also a member of the Jewish Agency? Hamlin. Yes. Fulbright. Does this report accurately describe the type of activities of the American Zionist Council, which are being financed by the Jewish Agency, American section? Hamlin. I cannot answer that question, honestly, sir. I do not know. Fulbright. Who would know about that? Hamlin. Sir? Fulbright. Who would know about that? Hamlin. I presume the staff members of the American Zionist Council. Fulbright. You are not very familiar with what the American Zionist Council does? Hamlin. I am in a general way, but I'm not an officer there, or an employee, so I cannot vouch for these activities. Fulbright. Do you approve the budget that they submit to you? Hamlin. No, sir. Fulbright. Who does? Hamlin. The treasurer did in this period. Fulbright. Who's the treasurer? Hamlin. Mr. Louis A. Pincus. Bilkstein. Mr. Chairman, I think there was a misunderstanding. You did not mean him personally. You mean you in the sense of the organization? Fulbright. Yes, the Jewish agency. Bilkstein. He took it to mean, does he personally approve the budget? Hamlin. Yes, I did. Fulbright. Does the agency approve the budget? Hamlin. Yes, sir. Fulbright. This was a period in 1962 in which, as you have testified before, the agency is contributing approximately 80% of their budget, and it would be quite natural that you would examine and approve or criticize, or what you like, the budget. Would it not? I mean, not you in every instance. I mean, the agency. Hamlin. Yes, the organization, certainly. Now, the treasurer of the Jewish agency was requested by the executive to negotiate this allocation. Fulbright. Who did he negotiate with? Hamlin. With Rabbi Miller and Mr. Bick, the treasurer of the council. Fulbright. That is right. Hamlin. Yes, sir. Fulbright. Take the second paragraph of that memorandum, the report. I guess you would call it, I quote, At the time, the department had a budget of $750,000. What is the department? Mr. Hamlin, did you ask at what time? Fulbright, what does the department mean? Hamlin, the Department of Information. Fulbright, Department of Information? Hamlin, yes. Senator Fulbright, reading. 
Today, the budget is $175,450, with an obligation to carry on a comprehensive, diverse, and complex project, which demands personnel and funds. However, she pointed out that the part of the work of the original council had now been taken over by the Kennan Committee, which was charged with political action, formerly in the province of the American Zionist Council. All approaches on the Hill, to the political parties, etc., are now the responsibility of the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, whose funds are not tax-exempt. Thus, the greater emphasis is now put on the more subtle approach, which, through positive presentation of Israel's accomplishments, aims and purposes, and by counterattack of the many enemies of Israel in the Zionist movement. Fulbright. Was the direct political action of the unsubtle type at one time in the province of the American Zionist Council? Hamlin. I have no personal knowledge of this, Senator. Fulbright. What do you mean by the Kennan Committee? I've not heard it referred to as a committee before. Hamlin. The Kennan Committee is the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. Fulbright. I thought he was known as some kind of reporter up to now. What did he... Bookstein. It was brought out, Senator. He was in two capacities. He is the owner and publisher of a, uh, what is it called? Near East Report? But in addition, he's the director of the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. Fulbright. And that is what this is? Bookstein. Yes. Fulbright. Well, we will just place the report in the record. The documents that Fulbright placed into the Senate record reveal that the assertion that APAC was only receiving non-tax-exempt funds from American donors was not accurate. $574,550, with a former budget of $750,000, minus the then-current budget of $175,450, mysteriously disappeared from the Department of Information budget around the same time that the Kennan Committee, or APAC, was ramping up its activities. The Jewish Agency's legal counsel refused to affirm what seemed obvious to Fulbright and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Kennan was lobbying Congress with overseas funds. The earlier lobbying with tax-exempt funds became untenable after the meeting with Fred Scribner and warnings of impending investigations. New artifices were erected to hide activities while the AZC continued the effort with United Jewish Appeal Relief and Israeli government funds from the Jewish Agency. Based on budget analysis, it seems highly likely that the formation of APAC was an effort that temporarily sapped the Department of Information as startup funds were channeled to Kennan and his activities through various hidden conduits. But the subvention caveat discussed later means Americans would probably never know for sure. The FBI, ready to raid the American Zionist Council offices for records, remained leashed, and the Department of Justice accepted a Foreign Agents Registration Act declaration that omitted the critical period when Isaiah Kennan received most of his foreign funding. The Jewish Agency and the American Zionist Council initially claimed that they had an arm's-length, subscription-based relationship with Isaiah Cannon. However, their own internal reports and handwritten notes revealed that their payments were directed by the foreign principals in Jerusalem specifically to subsidize Cannon. Dialogue in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee record reads, Fulbright. Well, I now show you an undated handwritten note and signed, OK, I, Hamlin. And I ask if you signed and approved the payment sent in this note. Isidore Hamlin. Yes, sir. That is my signature. Fulbright. The main part of the note deals with HK subventions, but I call your attention to the line reading, Kennan paid 
January 14, $5,000, which has a line drawn through it and the initials OK next to it. And I ask you if this refers to I.L. Kennan, Hamlin. Sir, I will have to look, try to find out what happened in this case. But it is possible that we made payments to the council for Kennan. We may have, that is, uh, for the purpose of these subscriptions of the Near East Report, which was done by the American Zionist Council for the sake of bookkeeping, for the sake of uh, our internal records, it may have been designated as uh, Kennan, just as in the case of memorandums I designated Schwadron, just to save time, Fulbright. I'm just trying to clarify the record on this. Could you file for the record the payments that you made to the American Zionist Council to Mr. Cannon? In a lengthy grilling of the Jewish agency's American foreign agent, Isidore Hamlin, during the August 1, 1963 Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearings, Fulbright attempted to clarify Kennan's employment status, as well as exactly how the Jewish agency was financing the Near East report. As mentioned, Kennan provided copies to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and the rest of Congress free of charge. Fulbright's interrogation of Isidore Hamlin about Kennan was dogged and revealing. Fulbright. Here, I would gather, he says he is an employee or was of the American Zionist Council. He is not an independent entrepreneur the way you described a moment ago, according to his letter. Isidore Hamlin. Sir, I, I don't know the relationship between Mr. Kennan and the American Zionist Council, but the letter is clear that he performed certain services to the American Zionist Council. Now, what we are discussing is my answer to this question is a subsequent period to his relationship and refers only to subscriptions to the Near East Report. Fulbright. Well, now, this change in status came about approximately the same time as you reorganized your whole operation in America, did it not? Hamlin. Yes, it did. Fulbright. Now, was this change of Mr. Cannon's status part of the reorganization? So instead of paying him directly, you now buy enough subscriptions to pay him? Hamlin. It would not, sir. Fulbright. Why not? Doesn't he perform very much the same function as he did before? He serves the same purpose. Hamlin. No, sir. Not, not at all. Fulbright. Why not? Hamlin. He was performing speaking services during that earlier period. We were giving the American Zionist Council a money grant for subscriptions to the Near East Report. Fulbright. Doesn't he speak anymore? Hamlin. To my knowledge, he has no connection now. No arrangements with the Zionist Council. Fulbright. But he writes these letters, doesn't he? Hamlin. Pardon me? Fulbright. He writes the Near East Report. Hamlin. Yes, sir, he does. Fulbright. And he sends them to all sorts of people free of charge, doesn't he? Hamlin. I'm sorry, sir? Fulbright. He sends them all around free of charge. Hamlin. Free of charge? I don't know. Fulbright. Well, you pay for them. I mean, the arrangement is that you, through the American Zionist Council, pay for them, and they send them to a list who do not subscribe. Is this not correct? I can see from my own experience. He sends me one, and I don't pay for it. Hamlin. Sir, the council provided the funds. Fulbright. Is it me or the committee? Maybe I do them an injustice, but we get one. Maybe it is the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Bokestein. Mr. Chairman, it's obvious from what the witness said that a large number of recipients of the bulletins don't pay for it. Fulbright. That is right. Bokestein. The American Zionist Council pays for a number of them. Fulbright. That is right. Bookstein. 
But nevertheless, the impression should not be left that there's a bulk or the major part of recipients of the publication. My information is that it isn't so. And while you permit me, Mr. Chairman Fulbright, I missed that. Wait a minute. What is not so? Bookstein. That a number of people receiving, that the people receiving bulletins are, what is it called? The nearest report? Which are paid for by the American Zionist Council? Are not the majority of recipients? I don't know the exact percentage. But it's only part of the number published and distributed. Now, while I'm at it, Mr. Chairman, I would like to say one more word so that you will have the information. I personally, in my capacity as counsel, had a great deal to do with the reorganization which took place in 1960. I participated in many meetings. At no time, Mr. Chairman, did the services or functions of Mr. Kennan enter a discussion which had anything to do with the reorganization or purposes for the reorganization. I'm saying this simply so that the record be clear and that no unfair inferences may be drawn as to the payments being made to Mr. Kennan. Fulbright. I am reminded Mr. Kennan, in his own letter, says that these subscriptions from the Zionist Council average about 23% of the total circulation expired in 1962. You do not regard Mr. Kennan for practical purposes as an employee of the Jewish agency? Hamlin. Definitely not. Fulbright. Do you find his policies in disagreement with yours? Hamlin. I know Mr. Kennan is the director of the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, which is composed of distinguished citizens of this country. He travels around. They have a fundraising campaign. These are not tax-exempt funds, which Mr. Ken carries on his activities as director of that committee. What are his activities in Washington? Are you familiar with it? Hamlin. Not in detail, no, sir. But he is a registered lobbyist in Washington in his capacity as director of the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. Fulbright. He's a registered lobbyist under the domestic lobbying law? Hamlin. That is right, sir. Fulbright. Why do you think he shouldn't register under the Foreign Agents Registration Act? Hamlin. Excuse me, I, I can't comment on that, Mr. Chairman. Bookstein. I'm not acting here for Mr. Kennan, Mr. Chairman. Fulbright. Well, maybe we ought to ask Mr. Kennan. Do you think he would be competent to answer that question? Buckstein. I assume he would be. My offhand opinion would be that he does not have to register under the Foreign Agents Registration Act, not from the facts as disclosed in this, in the executive session, or at this meeting. Fulbright. Not as disclosed, but from facts as you know them? Buckstein. Let me go further. From the facts as I know them, he should not have to register. Fulbright. Mr. Buckstein. I would not hesitate to challenge your opinion about whether he should register or not, but for the life of me, I can't understand why a person who receives such a large subsidy from a foreign agent indirectly, because it goes to the American Zionist Council, should not have to register, whereas if he received it directly, I think you'd agree he would have to register, wouldn't he? Bookstein. He... Fulbright, and the device of merely using the American Zionist Council seems to me to be a very thin way of insulating him from the effects of the Foreign Registration Act. Bookstein. Mr. Chairman, he's selling a service. He's publishing a bulletin. If there were any debts or liabilities, he or his corporation are responsible for them. As a matter of fact, when the American Zionist Council sees paying him for the bulletin, he sees sending out copies to the list, which they'd furnished him. I don't believe he's subject to registration under those conditions. Fulbright. I've seen a number of his publications. And if they aren't completely devoted to the promotion of the purposes of your, 
the purposes of your, the same purposes, the Jewish agency and the state of Israel, I don't know what is. It's directed to that purpose. I'm not criticizing the purpose. You have a right to do it. You do it, and you register for it. I'm just not clear why Mr. Cannon, who serves the same purpose, and in fact, in some ways, much more directly in his contact with Congress than you are, why shouldn't he have to register? Read the Senate record? Widespread evidence that the Jewish Agency, American Zionist Council, and APAC were end-running the Foreign Agents Registration Act led to one final showdown over the registration law. Late in the August 1, 1963 hearing, Fulbright put the question directly to the Jewish Agency's legal counsel, an engineer of the 1960 reorganization of U.S.-based Zionist organizations, Maurice M. Bokstein. Mr. Bokstein, you haven't enlightened me as to how we may deal with this matter, because you only confirmed my view that under the existing law and practices, at least— as they are illustrated here, it completely thwarts the purpose of the Foreign Agent Registration Act because we are not given any information, neither the public or government, as to the nature of these activities and the nature of these projects for which this registrant here is supplied the money, Bookstein. Mr. Chairman, if you would go back to the time when the Foreign Agents Registration Act was made law in 1938, I think the purpose was altogether different. The language, of course, comprehends everybody, but the purpose at that time was to bring out into the open subversive, at that time particularly, Nazi activities, and I hope that the law in this respect have served its purpose. But to the extent that it is still law, and to the extent that it is to be applied to other purpose, I certainly agree with you that it needs considerable modification and change. In fewer words, the head of the Jewish agency, American Section implied that the raw power of the Israel lobby in the U.S. meant that governing laws would have to accommodate the lobby's activities rather than the reverse. Fulbright attempted to legislate ever more stringent modifications to the Foreign Agent Registration Act, and the 1963 Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearings on the agents of foreign principles propelled covert U.S. activities of the Israel lobby to the front pages. Many Americans concerned about Middle East policy sat back, confident that in the light of the overwhelming documented violations, the U.S. Department of Justice would soon be issuing indictments or at least demanding foreign agent disclosures in the Ferris section. The Foreign Agents Registration Act section, Department of Justice, and FBI were indeed working in tandem with the Fulbright investigation. But the public record in the press is truncated and provides no closure. This is because the records of the internal Department of Justice deliberations and actions were classified and unavailable for public review. The files contained valuable insight about the Department of Justice's battle to enforce FARA over its most egregious violator. <laughs> 